Hello, and welcome to On The Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for more than a decade. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their life. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Andy Oliver. Andy's a chef, TV presenter, radio broadcaster and singer possibly best known for presenting the TV show Great British Menu, where top chefs compete for the chance to cook in a four-course banquet. She's also presented Nana and Andy Dish It Up on BBC Two, alongside her close friend, Nana Cherry. Andy lives in East London, just across the road from her daughter, Makita, who's also a TV presenter. During lockdown, the pair launched What's For Dinner Mum? a fun, family-orientated Instagram video series about cooking. Andy Oliver, welcome to the Marie Curie Couch. Hey, Jason. Can I ask, Andy, can you tell us about a significant bereavement you've experienced in your life? Well, when I was 25, my brother, who was 27, uh, died very suddenly from uh, sickle cell anemia. And uh, we were 18 months apart. We were really close. We were in a band together. We did everything together. You know, we were proper siblings. We used to fight and love each other and fight and love each other. And, you know, we were together a lot, possibly more than most siblings because we were on the road on tour together all the time, as well as just being brother and sister. So we were very, our lives were very, very intertwined. And when he died, I, 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 a part of me just shut down completely. And I was kind of, I think I was talking about this the other day to somebody. I was a sort of high functioning, in shock, depressed person for about 12 years, I think, to be really, to, you know, when I really look at it, and I really think about my behavior. I got really ill. I developed a very serious eating disorder. And I, I just, I did, you know, it, each day putting one foot in front of the other, it was like walking through setting cement, you know, it, that, it kind of felt like that. And after a while, you know, the thing about bereavement, the thing about losing somebody, close to you is that when it happens it's a bit like having a baby as well oddly when it happens everybody's all everybody's there and everybody's around and then the funeral happens or whatever ceremony you have happens and everybody goes back to their life and you're still there in in the loss in the death in the in the bereavement and then they expect you quite quickly, not through any malice, but because they've got on with their lives, they, they sort of check in on you and stuff, but they they imagine after about four or five months that you're coming through, that you're kind of getting back on your feet again. And, you know, in my experience, I just really wasn't. 
you know, we hear that a lot as well. And I think those kind of first sort of weeks to couple of months after somebody's died, then, you, you know, you might be busy arranging, organizing funerals. Um, as you say, there's people around, people are kind of giving support. But then, you know, understandably, they then go back to their own lives. And what people, people will describe kind of that being, I suppose, often the kind of beginning of the grief really you know that kind of six eight weeks on it's when it kicks in yeah because everything so you, there's nothing to busy yourself with anymore you know I had my daughter Nikita she was still quite young she was only five um and actually you know I had her to look after but I wasn't really able to be her mother properly and so she and my niece and my nephew all went up to stay with my mother who actually really needed them she just lost her son. So having her grandchildren, two of his children and my daughter with her, I think was really important for her. And their mothers, me and Carol and Tessa, were not able to really parent in the way that we felt, you know, I, I could barely get up to the school to pick her up. Do you know what I mean? I couldn't really, I couldn't stick to timings. I couldn't you know, I couldn't organise anything. I couldn't really string a sentence together. I would find myself walking down the road and then my legs would sort of give way. I'd have to just sit by the side of the road for, you know, but I think sort of having a kind of panic attack, actually, retrospectively. I think that's what was happening to me. I was having sort of anxiety, overwhelming anxiety attacks. And I think as you're describing as well, you know, grief can just be all-consuming physically and mentally and has such a toll. The shock of it. It was just, it was such a shock, even though, you know, we knew, we were always told with sickle cell anemia, people with sickle cell anemia have a shorter life expectancy. We were told from the time we were teenagers that he would probably not live past 30. But that doesn't mean anything to you when you're a kid. What does that mean? 30 just seems so long away anyway. Yeah. You know, 30 sounds like 80, doesn't it? Sounds like 90. When when you're 15, somebody being, or 12, somebody being 30 sounds like something in the very far off forever Neverland sort of thing. So it didn't really mean anything to us. So when he died at 27, I remember thinking, oh my God, he didn't get to 30. Can you tell us about your brother's death? He had a sickle cell crisis and the sickle cell crisis is uh basically the blood cells kind of coagulate they they lock up in different parts of your body and the blood can't get to that part of your body and so you have attacks in different parts in your joints usually or in your spleen it can be mistaken for appendicitis that when we first had this first attack we thought he had appendicitis and because it only sickle cell anemia only affects people of the African diaspora, and then thalassemia, um, which is very similar, affects people of the Mediterranean diaspora. So we are the only people affected by it. Um, so not much was known about it in Europe at the time, and the only reason we found out about it, they were about to take his appendix out. Now, if somebody's got sickle cell anemia, you can't give them general anaesthetic because it will bring on a massive crisis. They were about to put him under, and the surgeon went, hang on a minute, hang on a minute, and the surgeon happened to have worked in Africa a lot, and he went, I don't think this is appendicitis. I think this boy has got sickle cell anemia, and Sean was about 
he was probably about eight at the time. So that doctor saved his life then, but way back then. Anyway, so when he died, he had an attack in his brain. Basically, he had a really serious sickle cell attack in his brain and he was rushed to hospital. He sort of slipped into a, not really a coma, but he was out. And then he woke up again and I got to talk to him a little bit. Um, and then he went back to sleep and then he rested and died about two hours later. And I was at, uh, I was cooking at a, a place called The Globe, which was this kind of mad speakeasy I used to cook in. It was the first place I ever cooked that people gave me money. It was this little crazy little place. And I got a call saying, you need to get to the hospital. Your brother's Sean's in the hospital, St. Charles Hospital. Sean's in St. Charles Hospital. I just remember dropping everything in the middle of the kitchen. And somebody got me into a cab and got me up there. And I got to see him, but my mum never got to see him again. She she was in Suffolk and she was driving down the motorway from Suffolk, just desperately trying to reach here before he passed. And she never, she got, um, she came to the car park and he's gone. It's awful. One of the worst moments of my life, having to tell her that she'd missed him, you know? It was so painful. It's really painful now talking about it. It's, I've actually started, um, interestingly, having therapy again. And lately, because this was a long time ago, I was 25, I'm 58. And I've had three therapy and I've had therapy since. But I've, I recently really felt, you know, different points in your life, there are different ways to unearth pain and different ways to unearth trauma, aren't they? And unlock different things. And I recently felt that there was something happening with me and I started having therapy again and I've realized that there's a lot to do with his death that I haven't really faced you know the loss that I that I kind of locked away you know just after he died I was walking up Kensington Park Road with my friend Vivian Goldman who you know you you don't forget the people who never leave your side do you and Vivian never left my side through the whole for so long we were walking up Kensington Park Road and there was a film shoot happening. And you know, the, you know, Margie Clark, who is the actress from Liverpool, brilliant actress. Yeah. And we met Margie on the street and uh, she said, are you okay? And this said, she's, her brother died last week. I could barely talk. And she looked, she took my hands and she said, I lost my brother 20 years ago. And she said, I just want to tell you that you'll never get over it, but you'll find somewhere to keep it. It was the only thing that anybody said to me that made any sense. And she was completely right. That is what happened. And I love that finding somewhere to keep it. What, what does that mean to you now, Andy? Um, in a way, I think it means that they never leave you. And actually, Physical death is physical death and physical loss is physical loss, but the spirit of somebody, the love that you have with somebody, the gratitude I have for having had him at all, because the older I get, the further away I get from it, the more grateful I am that I had him at all, that I had a brother and that he was brilliant and that we had the life together that we had, that we had the fun together that we had, 
that we had the fights that we had, <laughs> that we had, you know, everything that we had. I, 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 the further away I get from it, the more I'm like, well, you know, because you become more philosophical as you get older, don't you? And you start to understand, you know, I, I understand people go through so much pain and suffering in so many more, in so many ways without having had any love, without having had any joy, without having had any connection and, and nurture in their lives. So at this point, I still feel the pain, but I feel the gratitude sort of is the most powerful thing that I'm left with. You just reminded me there when you were talking of um, there's a there's a model of grief by someone called Tonkin Tonkin's model of grief and I'll try and explain it probably not very well because <laughs> it's much more visual but if you imagine the, the kind of what what we expect is there's three jam jars and you've got a golf ball in one of them which is the grief and then over time in the second jam jar it shrinks to the size of a conker, and then in the third jam jar, the size of a pea. But actually what Tonkin says is, he empties the three jars and he sets them back up. There's a golf ball in each jar, which is exactly the same size, but the jar grows bigger over time. Changes size, yes. So the third jar is a catering size jam jar. So essentially the grief stays the same, but we grow around it. Yes. I hear that. I understand that fully. Yeah. I, 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 and that's absolutely it. And, you know, my compassion is more as well. This, you learn things from loss, don't you? We learn from pain if we're lucky and if we're lucky enough to survive it. Because, you know, not everyone survives the grief is the other thing. You know, it's like sometimes the grief gets you too. You know, people die of a broken heart. People can die from that. And I fully understand how that can happen, you know? Um, and uh, I think death loss has taught me compassion, more compassion, to be more compassionate. It taught me uh, patience with other people's pain. It taught me to look beyond the surface of interaction. So interestingly, what really helped me was uh, I started volunteering at a place called the London Lighthouse, which was an HIV AIDS hospice just off um, Labrick Grove. And I started to volunteer there on a Friday, so work, work there on Women's Day on Friday. And I met all these incredible people there who were living with the very real prospects of their own death with the loss of so many people that they loved. We're, and they were so, there was so much power in their, in their courage and in the beauty of that. I learned to stand up again. And it's like by reconnecting with other human beings, they gave me courage to keep on. And they showed me how to keep living and, and how precious life is each day. It showed me, they taught me the value 
of each day. And that just because I'd lost somebody, what I learned was that I'd lost somebody, but he wouldn't have wanted me to lose myself. And when you're spending days with people who are, who have a terminal prognosis, they know they're gonna die, and they're laughing and they're joyful and they're scared and they're powerful people. It just gives you a different perspective. It gave me a perspective that I really needed. And I will always be grateful to the London Lighthouse. That place was amazing. It was an incredible place. Sounds something like being able to lift your head again and look outwards. Yeah, it was. It was like I could, I could feel the world again because something about grief, I think, it's like, well, for me, I mean, it's different for everybody, obviously, but for me, I was numb. I couldn't feel anything, which is probably why I developed an eating disorder. You know, I was like trying to feel. It was like I got really compulsive and I was just putting food in my face that I wasn't eating. It wasn't, it wasn't eating. It was searching. I was searching for life in anything, in something, in somewhere, trying to feel something. And when I started working with these incredible people, I learned, I, I remembered where the world was. And I remembered I was in it. And I, the feeling of the sun on my face. And, you know, I re, what I remembered is, this is so interesting to talk to you about this, actually, because I haven't spoken to anyone about this for years, the experience of working there. And I remember rediscovering joy in tiny things. That's what the London Lighthouse taught me. The people at the Lighthouse taught me was joy in tiny things. Like there's a little, there was a beautiful little garden there we would walk around and just like, you know, the pink, the colour pink. Look at that. Look at that. That's a, that's a colour, that's a flower. You know what I mean? That's a butterfly. That's a, that's a bird. That's the sky. That's water. You know, just, just simple glory. It reconnected me to that reconnecting you to the world it's interesting now as well you're talking about the garden because i i um i didn't work at the lighthouse but i worked in the community um with people who were living with hiv and aids and would often use the lighthouse i'd kind of go with them and i i remember in the garden it was the first time i'd ever seen a fig tree and there was like figs in the garden which was just like amazing yeah in london so i didn't know figs could grow in london yeah it was a, it was a magical place and i I think it's quite interesting that that it was other people, and it and oftentimes I think that it, it's not the people you already know; it's the people that you don't know. It's new people connecting with new relationships that can bring you the the re re-energizing vitality that you need to connect to the world again because I think the people that you do know are waiting for the old you to show up and the old you is never really going to show up because you're forever altered by grief not in necessarily in a terrible way but you're altered it changes you I think it changed me painfully 
but for the good in the long run, because anything that gives you more compassion and empathy is a good thing in the long run, even if you would rather it hadn't happened to you. And you'd rather you didn't have to experience it in the long run. The empathy and the compassion that you gain from it is a good thing. But so grief does alter you and, and bereavement does alter you. And I think that your old friends, your old family find it, you know, they have to learn how to navigate the new things about you. Somebody completely new just accepts you as you are. And, and you can find out about yourself as you're getting to know them, you can rediscover yourself. And I think that's what happened for me. I started to rediscover myself gently, gently, slowly. The lighthouse was somewhere that gave you time, didn't it? It was a real place of uh, solace and it gave me time. And also helping other people takes you out, you know, depression and sadness. It's not, when I say selfish, I don't mean selfish in a bad word I mean it's self-contained isn't it keeps you in your own head all the time and you're going round and round and round and that's one of the things that drives you you know sends you a bit off the wall is the repetitive cycle of thought that you just go round and round and then you re-experience the trauma again and again and again the moment the doctor came out and said that he died the moment that we got to the funeral the moment you know his casket went into the, into the crematorium all those moments so many awful moments that you keep re-experiencing and the thing about reconnecting with other people and helping other people is it it breaks that cycle it broke that cycle for me it took me out of that pattern of just thinking about what had happened in my life and what I was going around with it's interesting because people might think the opposite that actually you know if you are in that place where um you know you're depressed and you're struggling and life's really hard and then you send it say oh well i'm going to go and volunteer with people who are terminally ill people might be like oh well, don't go and do that because it's probably just going to make you worse but actually what you're describing is no it's a very very different experience and it can be really cathartic and helpful and yeah yeah loving and regenerating and it just reminds you to be grateful that you still have life and that you still have time and you still have opportunities there are still things there and you know we had our kids and life was there for me and that I'd had him at all I keep coming back to this thing of being grateful that I'd had him at all mm -hmm. and I think that was when I started thinking that way so in a place of life and death like the lighthouse or a hospice um it almost sounds like there's a there's a sort of spotlight shone on on life yeah um you know you're describing the garden and seeing pink again the flowers and the small things and that kind of appreciation that sort of re-evaluation of, of what's important what brings meaning to you um to then help you move forward get back on my feet no absolutely absolutely talking and preparing can make life better at the end find more inspiration support and tools including our conversation cards to get you thinking and talking about the end of life at mariecurie.org.uk 
forward slash talkabout. So you mentioned earlier having therapy, so going back into therapy, but also having some therapy over the years. Um, and it sounds like that's been something else that's helped you as well, Andy. Oh, essential. I, I'm, a, I'm like a therapy evangelist. <laughs> like people start talking about that, you know what you need, babe, get some therapy. It's just that, I mean, I just, I would not be here today if I hadn't started having therapy. And it didn't just help me deal with the grief of losing my brother, it helped me deal with everything that I needed to sort of face and and um, every hurdle that I've ever had to get over, I've had with the help of, I've gone over it with the help of therapy. Therapy to me is like, we are so lucky to be able to access therapy. It's just a, a brilliant way of, you know, talking therapy for me as well. I mean, I know some other, some people are music therapy, art therapy, color therapy, there's all sorts of things that work for people. For me, I'm a very vocal, verbal person. So talking therapy has saved my life again and again and again. And, you know, there's, there's, sort of, there's some sort of stigma about it still for some people. They go, oh, therapy is like an indulgence. And, you know, when I think about it, I think that actually, you know, if you look at it historically, tribally, even, there's always somebody within a, a community or a group of people who people go to talk to. Like they used to be the elders or the keeper of the secrets or the wise man, or the wise woman, or the witches, or whoever it was, there's always, in any social group, there's a group of people within that social group that people go to for help. They go to and they talk to them, or they dance it out, or they sing it out, or they, you know, whatever it is, leeches, <laughs> whatever it is they use, but there's a way uh, uh, to, to access that stuff and to, to, to release it from your system, because you're you have to find ways to release stuff from your soul, your heart. There's not, there's no space for it all. You've got to get it out there. I mean, I can't recommend it highly enough. And I'm so grateful to all the therapists I've ever had. <laughs> there's a few, it sounds like there's a sort of legion of people, but there sort of are. You know, I, I met a man, because um, I was really ill really very ill with this eating disorder after Sean died. And I, I didn't know what to do. I just, and, and I didn't know that it was quantifiable as an eating disorder. I was eating compulsively. And I didn't know that that was an eating disorder. I just thought I was greedy, right? So because at the time people would speak about anorexia and bulimia, but they never spoke about a compulsive eating disorder. You just should, should go on a diet or what's the matter with you. It was a bit like that, do you know what I mean? Um, nowadays there's more information about compulsive eating disorder and it is now recognized as a proper addictive behavior disorder and you can get help for it so if anybody's listening to this I just there is help there for you um I think socially it's it's sort of sometimes more difficult to pinpoint because people think you should just go on a diet what's the matter with you stop eating and it's like you actually can't it's not it's the same as any other addictive disorder that can kill you it's like drinking or taking drugs or anything else except you still got to do it you know you still got to eat three times a day at least so um I always say nobody would expect an alcoholic to take three sips of whiskey a day would they you just have to stop you know with food any food behavioural disorders, it's very tricky because you've still got to engage with the 
the stuff that you're that's giving you that, that you've uh, that you've got disorder with that you're battling with that you're yeah that your disorder is based around anyway um so i met this doctor dr lefevre and uh he had this place called promise really expensive private clinic he said the nhs might pay for you to go the nhs wouldn't pay for me to go they they tried to send me to Weight Watchers, which was not the thing. I was, I had a mental disorder. I was not well. Um, and he let me go for free to his clinic for two and a half months, two months, something like that. And he, he just said, I'm not going to, I can't turn you away because he, I would, I think I would have died. I was really ill. I, I could barely, I just didn't, I was eating in the dark, in crying on my own. And not knowing how to stop, it was it was horrendous. It was horrifying. It was humiliating. It was I felt full of shame. I felt so much pain, and I didn't know how to express it. And I didn't know how to tell anyone what was happening because I was embarrassed about it. And I was just getting fatter and fatter and huger and huger. And and then drinking on top of that. You know, I was in a terrible state. So, and he just basically took one look at me and he, and he could tell that if he didn't, if he hadn't helped me, I would have gone under, I think. So he saved my life, another person. There's a string of people I'm forever grateful to. And Dr. Lefevre is one of them. He's an incredible man, kind, generous, natural healer, human being, you know? And I went to his clinic and that's when I, the first time I ever had therapy, started talking about things. And I'd never really done that. Not like that, I've chatted to my friends and you know, you talk about things, but you only go so far with people that know you. The thing with therapy is they have no agenda. They're not your mate, they're not your mum, they're not your cousin, they're not your auntie, they're not your boyfriend, they're not your girlfriend, they're nothing to you in that way. And you don't have to protect them. You don't have to protect them. You, and you don't have to, you don't have any relationship outside of that. So it's, a, it's the most precious, brilliant, beautiful space. And, you know, it's again, saved my life. And I don't know what I would have done without all those people really. And I had group therapy as well, which I loved. I loved. <laughs> my friend always said, what do you mean you love group therapy? I'm like, I like it because of the, interaction with everybody else and we're all there just putting it out on the table as equal human beings and you let down all your walls and you just allow your vulnerability your naked vulnerability to show and that is the healthiest most beautiful sort of moving thing to for another person can show you is the the deepest darkest fear and the heart of themselves you know and for you to be truly seen yes yes to show it yourself and to be seen and heard you know those things sound so simple don't they to be seen and to be heard but actually they, they can be the hardest things to find in life and to and also to speak your truth somebody i read something the other day when somebody said why do people keep saying your truth like there's more than one truth. I'm like, because there is more than one truth. Because there's more than one way to perceive a situation and more than one person experienced it. So there's different factors 
are involved from each person looking at it through their own personal lens. So of course there's more than one truth, you know? And to find your own way, your own language, your own lexicon of mental acuity, your own ability to speak your truth is the most powerful gift anyone can give you. I'm just gonna move on slightly now. Actually, before I do that, can I ask Andy, um, your brother's name? Sean, Sean. His full name was John Sidney Algernon, because we are a Caribbean family. <laughs> and we give each other a ridiculous name. My dad was called John Fitzroy Sylvester. They're great names. <laughs> I love Sydney as well. I'm Andrea Denise Marguerite. Nice. <laughs> There's a lot of it. <laughs> sure, but we called him Sean. Yeah. Thanks for talking about Sean today as well, you know, and just sharing uh, a, a bit of his story. I love to talk about him. So um, what we do know is that um, when people are living with a terminal illness, um, you know, one of the reasons we do this podcast is to encourage people to have conversations about death and dying. We know that those conversations can be very difficult and they can be made even more difficult in times when people are um, diagnosed with a, with a terminal illness. Um, but what we do know is that if people do have conversations about death and dying on a practical level, it can be very helpful. So planning for the end of life or, you know, things like writing a will or, um, you know, um, 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 talking about funeral wishes. Um, but also on an emotional level as well, you know, people can get the opportunity to, to have conversations and reflect on life. Um, and, and, but, but we know, we know that's not easy. So what, what we do here is from our listeners, actually, they find the podcast really helpful when they're either grieving themselves, um, or going through a bereavement or they're caring for somebody with a terminal illness. And so here are other people's stories, but like what you were describing earlier, talking about some of, some of the benefits of group therapy, but actually hearing other people's stories, you know, can, can certainly make you feel less alone um, in the world. And we know, that, we know that it can often be a very isolating experience. So I wanted to ask whether you thought about your own death. Yes. Yes, I haven't made any plans, though. I'm, I'm, not, I'm terrible at plans. Um, all, all I know is that I'd like to be cremated. And my daughter won't talk to me about things like death or me. She just can't even think about it. In fact, my mother is staying with me at the moment. And she was talking about her funeral arrangements yesterday. She was talking about she's paid for this and she's done certain things. And I left the room because it gave me quite a bit of anxiety. I just thought, I can't listen to this. She was talking to my boyfriend. She, she was deliberately talking to my boyfriend because I find it difficult to talk about. Um, so I, I, I thought about my own death, you know, and I, I guess really I just hope I did. I was speaking to my friend Oliver Payton, who I work with on Great British Menu, and he he's a funeral director. He has a company called Exit Here. And we did a whole conversation about death and dying. And actually it was really interesting for me to talk to him about that. And uh, he started Exit Here because 
of all the things you were just talking about, the fact that in our society, in our culture, we don't really talk about death and dying very much. And then when his dad died, he had such a terrible experience with the funeral directors. You know, death admin is a bit overwhelming. So he started a business that he wanted to make things clear, to make things simple, to make things, um, you know, biodegradable coffins so you can plant a tree and, and plant the uh, cremated remains people under the tree and it costs 200 quid instead of five grand. You know what I mean? All of that sort of stuff. Affordable death. Yeah. Because death is expensive, yeah. you know? It is. Um, so um, I actually, for the first time really last year, spoke to Oliver uh, quite a bit about death and dying. Uh, and we had a conversation about, you know, legacy. What do you want to leave behind? And And I just think, for me, that's just, I just want to have... I just wanted people to think, to know that I loved them, you know? Mm-hmm. I just want people to know that I loved them. And I want to keep living a life that is kind. It's kind of seemed very simple, doesn't it? <laughs> that's kind of when I, when I strip it all back, that's what's important to me, you know? So when I die, I want my daughter to know how much I love her and loved her irrevocably. What do you think is difficult about having those conversations kind of within families? I think people are scared of what it's going to feel like mm-hmm. when someone's gone, when we've lost someone. We're scared of the gap that's going to be in the family. We're scared about how we're going to fill that gap, if it's possible to fill that gap. We're scared about how death is going to take place. Is it going to be through illness? Is it going to be through, you know, some horrible violent accident? Yeah, everybody wants to die in their sleep, don't they? You know, we all hope that we'll just drift off and that we'll just won't wake up again. And then that'll be that. And you, you won't have to have fear. And I think, you know, one of the things for me um, that, you know, we were talking about circular thinking earlier that sort of drives you a little bit, sends you a little bit off the wall. One of the things that I used to go round and round and round in my head in was, was Sean scared? And it made me so upset and sad and worried and frightened that he had been, I just didn't want him to have been scared before he died. And I think that is something that's echoed in the fear about talking about death in families. You just want the person you love to pass gently and to leave this world in a gentle way. My partner's mother died last year. and She had a really regal passing. She had an aneurysm. She collapsed and we took her to the hospital. She never woke up again. But when she died, we dressed her in this beautiful dress she was a very beautiful woman, very elegant, Lynette, very, very elegant, beautiful woman. And she, the week before she'd had her nails done, she was lying on the bed and we dressed her in this dress and she had her hair was wrapped up. And I, I looked at my, our niece and I said, Christina, is it me or does she look like she's got gold eyeshadow on? And she looked, she looked like she'd like, she looked like she was manifesting this like incredible makeup. We were just like, how is that even happening? She was literally glowing and she passed, you know, and it was this beautiful, it was really sad. They're all, everybody was heartbroken, but it was beautiful. It was a, it was a regal 
Cleopatra passing. I love that. And, and that's so, so right and proper for her. She was the really elegant queen of a woman, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's something about people being there as well, isn't there? If you can, if you can, because we never know when it's going to happen. So that's not always, you know, the case. Um, but, but I think if people can share that experience, certainly kind of family members and loved ones, and, um, you know, th that, that can often, not always, but often be helpful for people. We were lucky because it was just before the pandemic. So there were like, it was like 20 people in the room, 50 all around the bed. And her grandson, one of her grandsons, he's, is a, a pastor, a youth pastor. And he was reading, she's a very religious woman. He was reading from the Bible and praying. We were holding hands and a little bit of singing, a little bit of crying, a bit of laughing, everything. It was, you know, that's, that's a way to go, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It is, it is, absolutely. Powerful, powerful. Just before we finish, um, can I ask Andy what it's meant for you to come on the Marie Curie couch today? Well, you know, another person who I lost was our nephew, Marcus, my partner's, my sister-in-law's son. And he was in his early 30s, Marcus, when he died. He had leukaemia. And he was one of the most charismatic, celebrated, celebratory human beings you'll ever meet in your life he walked in the room he was literally like sunshine he would elevate any room he walked into you could take him to any party any and people would go who is that guy because <laughs> he was just amazing and when he was sick Marie Curie provided care for his family for us but for his mother and his sisters and it was incomparable well, again, I'm forever grateful to Marie Curie for the love and the support that they gave to Marcus's mum and his sisters through his illness and after he died. I think the work that Marie Curie does is not just essential, but precious and beautiful. And I thank all of you for it. That's good to hear. Well... My turn to return the thanks, Andy Oliver, for joining me on the Marie Curie couch today. Thank you for being so honest and open and sharing some of your story and experiences. And it's been great to meet you. You too. Take good care, my love. So that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie's here to help. From planning ahead to coping with bereavement, you can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which also includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090 2309 or search Marie Curie online. This podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Sound and Vision. 
the music featured is Time Lapse by Panel Oceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.